okay, despite a little bit of a hiccup from last week involving the monsters in the machine who have been properly punished and have been reminded that their only job is to handle feedback like, well, this. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. I'm back. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, the man behind Monster Kid Radio, ostensibly. I mean, it's my name on the podcast, but the past few weeks, I've not really been on the show, and partly that's because I haven't had this microphone hooked up. I'm still not 100% happy with how the microphone sounds in my new office. I need to finish unpacking this room so it doesn't sound as empty and near echoey on the recording. Plus, I got to figure out why the computer sounds so much louder in this room here than it did where I had it set up in the Beaverton place. I'm not sure what the deal is there. I don't know if I can get some sound baffling or something to encase the computer in it. You know what? Bottom line is, I'm back. Kind of. Welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I'm thrilled to have you here this week. It's episode 549 of the podcast, and we're actually playing some new music. You know, we're not just doing the Monster Kid Radio theme. We're actually playing some music from a bonafide surf band called the Men in Gray Suits. This comes from the album Panic at the Pier. They are a surf band based out of Montreal, Quebec. Oh, the name of the song. Probably ought to tell you that. Le Baron is the name of the song. You can find them at themeningraysuits.bandcamp.com, and they spell their gray G-R-A-Y. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the Men in Gray Suits, so you can check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. Now, I didn't do a lot on this show because I'm still unpacking and getting settled in. And I still have a lot of work to do on the one recording that I'd really like to share with you. So what does that mean for you this week? My man Steve Turek from the Diecast Movie Podcast is back one more time, and he's back with Alistair Hughes. And they're going to talk about another Hammer film. And you know what? I listened to the entire recording, and I had a good time listening to it. I wish I was there with them. Who knows? Maybe someday I'll go back and revisit the movie that they're talking about this week. That movie is Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. It is the final Frankenstein film from the classic Hammer Films era. It's Peter Cushing. You can't go wrong. And Steve and Alistair knocked it out of the park as always. You know who else knocked it out of the park? Mark Matsky. That man does not know how to take a break or let up. He is knocking it out of the Ultra Park with his Beta Capsule review. And he left a really nice note for me when he sent me the link to this week's recording. Mark, thank you. And you know what? Thank you to everybody for all of your support, for all of your patience, for all of your understanding, for all of your back padding, hand holding, virtual and in-person hugs, the cards, the gifts from my divorce slash virtual housewarming registry over on Amazon, just everything. I appreciate you having my back. You know, eventually we're going to get into an amazing swing of things with the next stage, the next 
I don't know. Are we going to call it an, an evolution? The next season? The, the next... St- I don't know what's happening. I just know that we are about to hit 550 episodes of this podcast. And that's kind of a big deal. In that uh, I had no idea I'd make it this long. And I couldn't do it without you. Guys, gals, and everybody else. The Monster Kid Radio gang has my back. And I appreciate you for all of it. Thanks for your patience. And special thanks again this week to Steve and Alistair for going out of their way to not just setting up a time to record, but dealing with multiple time zones in multiple parts of the world and handling the edits for this conversation about Frankenstein and the monster from hell. We are slowly getting back into the swing of things, which means at about this point in the introduction, I start wrapping up to let you know that we're going to get into Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review and then the rest of the show right after this. Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it Chuck Award winner The Monster of Piedras Blancas The Monster of Piedras Blancas The world's most shocking monster Stalks its unsuspecting prey Feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms The screen's most nightmarish beast A claw-fingered, scaly-skinned, half-human crustacean turning a lonely lighthouse village into a frenzied bedlam of blood-curdling horror. Never have you known such cringing terror, then trapped in a torment of unendurable suspense. See the movie named the most brain-paralyzing shock story of them all, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. Right now, Michael Drake hasn't a care in the world. He's off on a camping holiday in California with his wife and two children, plus two dogs and a litter of puppies. What Drake doesn't know is that there are skeletons in his family closet and the bones are about to start rattling with a vengeance. You see, his name isn't really Drake. In the old country, it's pronounced Dracula. One thing, if what you say is true, I'm going to make a lot of money. Oh? Yeah, I'm going to sue all those people who've been making Dracula pictures without my permission. A very funny joke, Mr. Drake. But that is exactly the point. You are the only direct descendant. Don't forget, he wants your blood. We must prepare. In the daytime, we will look for him. At night, he looks for you. What's happening? Destroy him. Now! Summoned by the living dead, they come in the night, thirsting for human blood. Led by the most terrifying creature that ever walked the earth. 
Sultan, Hound of Dracula. Now there's a nice doggy, but before you pet it, take a good look. It might be a friend of Zoltan, Hound of Dracula. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. At this point in Tsuburaya Productions' smash hit series Ultraman, it's become clear that Tokyo has a kaiju crisis. This means job security for the Science Special Search Party, but as the title of the 32nd episode suggests, it must feel like an endless counterattack. The story begins in light-hearted fashion with Hayata pulling a fast one on his Science Patrol companions so that he can spend time with Patty a member of India's branch of the SSSP, who's vacationing in Japan. Their sightseeing is interrupted by the emergence of Zumbalar, a lumbering monster with the ability to superheat its surroundings, setting everything in its path ablaze. The Science Patrol sprays a fire-extinguishing substance from the VTOL, but it's a time-consuming process. Meanwhile, the Self-Defense Force artillery is reduced to flaming wreckage by Zumbalar's advance. Will Ultraman be able to stand the heat and keep Patty's vacation from going up in smoke? Endless Counterattack is a decent, if predictable, entry in the Ultraman canon, with some things working well and other things falling a bit flat. For example, the interplay between Science Patrol members is always compelling, and the addition of Patty extends the reach of the SSSP as a truly international organization. But Patty, as a character, is strangely lifeless. Apparently, she's exhausted and just really needed this vacation. But one gets the sense that Marianne, as Patty, was capable of a lot more than acting limp and tired. Sumbalar has a cool design and a visually arresting power, but an awful lot of screen time is devoted to the Science Patrol's firefighting efforts, and the creature is disposed of in very conventional fashion. Fortunately, the series rallies from this point, and Monster Zumbalar would maintain a presence in the Ultraverse, appearing in Marvel Comics 2021 Trials of Ultraman, where he interrupts a battle between our hero and a cyborg version of Ultra Q's Jiris. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. 
Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Gentlemen, we are witnessing a biological chain reaction. A geometrical progression of deadly menace. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible. Its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous. Its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. must kill to live. He is 104 years old. Your eyes? What's wrong with your eyes? Yes, look at him well. This thief of time, this man who could cheat death, who knows the secret of immortality. I've been taking this fluid every six hours now. It's madness. It is what keeps me alive. So you see, you must operate. You, you know what will happen if you don't. Yes, you will die. Liar. Cheat. Murderer. Offender against nature and God. See the liquid that cheats death. See what he steals from the tissues of his victims so that he may never grow old and never die. No, 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 don't, don't do it. Anton Differing is the man trapped by his own fearful invention. Hazel Court, the girl who knows his love, but not his shocking secret. George, I love you so much. Christopher Lee, the doctor who gleans the monstrous truth and must submit to blackmail to save the girl he loves. If you perform this operation and perform it successfully, I shall release her. If you don't perform this operation, or if anything should happen to me while you're operating, Janine will not be seen by you or anyone else again.
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Monster Kid Radio. Yes, I know. Three weeks in a row, you've been hearing my voice instead of Derek's voice. I can apologize for that. But Derek put out the signal light. He put a big H on it. I interpret that as meaning do another Hammer film. So I reached out to Mr. Hammer to me, Alistair Hughes, and we're doing a Hammer film again today. I guess you could start to say that maybe we can call this the Ali Steve show. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing today, Alistair? Hello. I'm doing really well, thanks, Stephen. Always good to talk to you. Um, always good to talk about Hammer. Uh, what, what what listeners don't realize is that um, what's actually happened here is that uh, Baron Frankenstein has actually uh, transplanted uh, Stephen's vocal cords into Derek's body. So although listeners think they're listening to Stephen, that's not quite the case, is it? Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> if that happened, it means Derek had a downgrade. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife will be happy that I'm actually mute. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like a win-win, doesn't it? <laughs> except for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except for you. <laughs> Sorry, Derek. <laughs> But no, um, Derek is still in the midst of unpacking and getting himself all situated. So he asked us to do another episode. And, and seriously, Derek, I'm glad you're getting your stuff organized. And for this little bit that we can do to help you with um, not being as pressured with all the stuff that's going on, we're fine with doing it. And we love Monster Kid Radio. And listeners, we hope that you're enjoying this little bit. I've, Jeff Owens coined me the Joan Rivers of podcasters now. <laughs> and oh, I, 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 Thoroughly enjoyed your um, chat with uh, Jeff. That was that was excellent to listen to. It was fun. I never I, I'd never seen the Atomic Submarine. I never saw Scars of Dracula until I saw it with you. But this time, actually, I remember seeing. I, I'd seen this movie before, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, and it, it's been a, a couple or more decades. I think it's been like twenty five, mm-hmm. thirty five years since I last saw this yeah. film. So it it was a nice rewatch. But before we get to that. What's been up with you these last, I mean, it's been two weeks. Has anything important been happening to you, like a book coming out or whatever you illustrated? Um, I, I, I do I do have a book coming out, or at least I'm working on Well, in fact, I've just had a book come out, and I'm working on another one, but they aren't, they aren't what you would call horrific, or at least not in the accepted sense. Um, I've just had a book released called The King's Medal, which I've illustrated, which is actually about um, World War II about the uh, New Zealand troops um, rescuing the Greek royal family from Crete in 1941 
when the Nazis in, in, invaded. Um, that book was probably harder work for me than Infogothic was because it involved a lot of research, getting getting uniforms and and weapons and and costumes exactly right. But I had a wonderful time with it, and that's just been released now. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we can't have the sort of uh, book launch that we wanted to do. But maybe next year, maybe towards Anzac Day, actually, which is our celebration of our of our troops, our Australian and New Zealand troops, we might be able to organise something for that. And I've just started work on a, on another book about the monarch butterfly, um, which you guys have in the States as well, I think. I believe so. The beautiful so. orange and black butterfly, so. yeah. I'm not, I'm not a butterfly um, expert, so don't hold me to it, listeners. Well, Stephen, neither am I, but I've got a feeling I might know a bit more about them by the time I finish this book. Um, in terms of movies, um, I'm a committee member of the local uh, movie theatre. And what we're doing at the moment is that we have a local film festival. I mean, I, I live in an area which only has 5,000 people in it, but they're very creative people. And every year, Golden Bay has its own film festival of uh, short, short films. And I've judged, I've been a judge there for the last couple of years, and the festival is coming around again. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the offerings for this year. Um, the films have to be under 12 minutes to qualify. And it's just incredible the variety uh, of movies that you get. And then finally, um, also as part of my duties as a committee member, we're apparently setting up a regular radio spot where I get to go on and talk about upcoming movies, which of course I can do until the cows come home, literally. Um, so that's something that we're setting up and, uh, and I'm looking forward to. So that's what's been happening with me. That, that's pretty exciting. That's some, that's a lot of good stuff. I mean, uh, I didn't know about, it. I know you were involved at the movie theater there and you also do movie reviews. Yeah. The local that's paper, right. right. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, there's, there's nothing better in the world than being paid to talk or write about movies. I mean, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> And what's what's been happening with, with you over the last fortnight? Um, since we last talked, I've interviewed Pat Cardi, who starred in yeah. Let's Kill Uncle, which I did with Derek um, a, few, a couple months ago or a month or so ago, and also Horror mm -hmm. High. And uh, so I'll be doing that'll be coming out on my show in January, and that was a fun interview. And it, it's a lot. To, I've really gotten into detail of learning about um, child acting and other things that he's done. And it, it really goes into depth about the, the person himself. So we talk about the movies, mm -hmm. but also about the person. So it was, it was really good. I did that actually the day before we're doing this. I was just happened yesterday. So your, your, your vocal cords are, aren't too tired for our chat um, this, this morning slash evening. Nope. Not, but they're pretty good right now. Cause he was doing most of the talking and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, that's the good part about the interviews. If I'm doing most of the talking, that's a really bad interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Stephen, before we get started, the, 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 the huge honor falls upon me. We, we decided that we were going to swap things around from last time. And this time, I was going to ask you questions from Derek's classic 
five's deck. So I have uh, prepared carefully some questions for you, which I hope you'll enjoy. I'm, and I'm hoping the listeners will too. So I'm going to get started now. Stephen, are you ready? I'm ready to accept this mission, Alistair. <laughs> All right, then. Here we go. Which classic horror, monster, or science fiction film should have had a prequel? Hmm. Mm. I always think Creature from the Black Lagoon. I would like to know the history Ooh. of the lagoon. You know, what happened there prior to that? You know, it could take place way far in the past. Yeah. You know, with, with more primitive tribes. And just to give us that idea that Nexus, maybe it was a huge race of them. Maybe something happened. That, that to me would be an interesting prequel because you'd, you'd have no, you'd be, you'd have no worry about the mythology of the current shows. You'd be able to really put it far back in the past and he doesn't even have mm. to end up, you know, being the last one left. It could just show us what goes, it, it could be, it could have set up for its own little trilogy to where it ends up at the final part where the creature is in the lagoon and that's what, you know, sets it off to where the movies pick up in the fifties. So it could be a single movie or a trilogy set up. Without even missing a beat, you've just given a brilliant answer. Yeah, that's something I would definitely love to see. Yeah, yeah. And it's an answer given Derek that, would give because um, maybe it's because that, that, that uh, I think so. Because of Baron Frankenstein doing that stuff, it's re- so maybe people are thinking I am Derek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Stephen. Question two. Mechagodzilla stomped Godzilla's scaly ass earlier this year, and you've spoken to the lovely Linda Miller, who was menaced by Mechanicong in the late 1960s. So which other kaiju should have had a mechanical rival? Okay, so we had we had a mechanical rival for Kong. We had a mechanical rival for mm-hmm. Godzilla. Yeah. We've also had, technically, you could say one for Ghidra or Ghidorah, that there was, mm-hmm. there was a mechanical one. So which yeah. one would be, sticking with just Japan Kaiju, I would be curious, and sticking with the Toho universe, so it takes mm-hmm. me out of the Gamera's and all those things, I'm yeah. torn between Mothra and Rodan. Oh. And I'm torn between, I think Mothra, because it'd be interesting because Mothra being nurturing and kind of like more of the earth type um, monster, you know, to always want to develop nature yeah. and everything to have it go against the mechanical nemesis would really be a yin yang type of situation. Yeah, that would. would be an interesting thing to see. And also you could take it and have other topics come in, like with technology and nature and all that stuff. I, th- I think it really could be something cool with that um, part. Cause you'd have not only the story between those two, but you can also make it a similar story with the human cast going through yes. the same stuff. Once once again, excellent excellent answer. I've sort of got this image of these sliding mechanical plates sort of making up Mothra's wings. It could visually be a really arresting sort of sort of image. And imagine like what that. the humans having to deal with a technovirus that's taking them over like the aliens bring a technovirus. Mm. Mm, like it. Then, like it, Steven. Because Mothra, I remember there was two larvae. One larvae gets infected and the other one doesn't. And then they yes. come off. That would, yeah, I, the more I think about it, the more I think this could work. Toho, do it. 
I, I really like that idea, and probably the publishers are going to be wondering why I'm drawing mechanical butterflies in this book instead of uh, instead of what they're expecting to see. Steampunk. Tell me it's a steampunk version. <laughs> yes, steampunk butterflies. <laughs> All right, question three. Planet of the Vampires or Planet of the Apes? Planet of the Apes. I grew up with it. I've seen all the original movies. I've seen the TV show. I remember having the lunchbox. I mean, it's, it's Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Roddy McDowell, I'm bowing to him. Mm. I mean, it's just Caesar. Agreed. It's, it's look, Charlton Heston to start off in the first film. I mean, come on. It's Planet of the Apes. I know some people are going to be upset that I did it so quickly, but it's I didn't see Planet of Vampires until I was like 51 years old. So Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes is just something as a boy all the way through Till now, it's it's just a childhood and an adult treasure. It's a classic. I always will love those original films and the TV show and the comic books. I think you you and I are of a similar age, Stephen. And even though in New Zealand we tended to get things about a year after the rest of the world, I certainly remember when I was growing up that Planet of the Apes was the big thing. It was it was the science fiction franchise. Um, and yeah, we were all obsessed with it as well. And they're still damn good films. Absolutely. Question four, um, a little bit more relevance to what we're going to be talking about today. Who never got to play Baron or Dr. Frankenstein, but should have? I'm going to go with a non-traditional answer. Yeah, do, do. Sir Lawrence Olivier. Oh, I like it. I like it. If you want to have yeah. some, you get, you get one of the greatest actors, you're definitely going to get a great performance. Definitely. And I think that would be... Oh, I, I can see that. Hmm. That's a, that's a brilliant answer. Yeah, I mean, he's played Van Helsing, so yeah. He'd make a great Frankenstein. Okay, final question, Stephen. Now, you've spoken to many actresses from all eras of movies on your excellent diecast movie podcast, who, and I don't mean from people you've necessarily spoken to, who would be your favorite screen, scream queen? I'll go with Faye Ray. You have to go with Faye Ray. Oh, of course. If I could yeah. pick all eras, I would have won with Adrienne Barbeau or Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. But I Faye mean, Ray they, classic. they, yeah, I would. Um, I seem to recall Fay Ray was my answer as well when when Derek asked me this this question. Um, Great minds think alike. That's what it is. It's not fools so seldom differ. It's uh, great minds think alike. <laughs> I prefer that one. <laughs> Stephen, those those were excellent answers. Um, well, you, you did really well under pressure. Um, I believe that you've won this one. Congratulations. Yes. Now, <laughs> I did warn you when you asked me this on the messenger thing. Do you mind me asking the classic five? I said I was going to ask you one question mm. that, I had, that I had planned anyway, because I think this is a good question for you, knowing your art background and your love okay. of movies and particularly your love of movie posters. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and I'm going to, I'm going to allow you a little leeway because I'm only giving you one question. <laughs> what are a couple or a few of your favorite Hammer movie posters? 
Mm. So I'm giving you a little, I'm not asking you to pick one. I'm giving you like two or three, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm allowing you a little latitude. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, just conjuring them up in my mind. Um, the the uh, poster for Dracula AD 1972 is a big favorite of mine, mainly because orange is my favorite color and I will get it in anywhere, but also um, it just encapsulates the mood of the film beautifully. Tim Chantrell um, is actually one of my all-time favorite uh, artists. Um, Hammer used them a lot and he also produced, you know, with respect to the Hildebrandt brothers and everyone else who's ever done a Star Wars poster, I think Tim Chantrell's British uh, original Star Wars movie poster is an absolute wonder, it's a beautiful work of art and I wish I had a copy but moving back to Hammer um, I also um Love the poster for uh, Dr. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, I think is a really, really, really clever piece of artwork. Once again, it, it creates the mood of, of what was then a revolutionary concept uh, and conveys it extremely well. I'm talking about the one where it looks like a, like a mirror image where you have Ralph Bates and at the top with a knife in his hand. And then underneath, as if she's a, a reflection, you've got Martin Beswick in the same pose. And lastly, I really, really like the poster for Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Mainly, I think, because it has a really, really good likeness of Peter Cushing, which, um, as, as someone who tries to be an artist, He's not always that easy to, uh, to, to, to capture. One thing that artists like to do sometimes is that to help them with their composition, they'll flip an image. With most people, believe it or not, that doesn't matter too much. You flip an image of Peter Cushing and it immediately looks so wrong. It, it hits you straight away. One of the things about Cushing you don't realize is that his nose actually I, I would say he obviously broke it at some point in his career. It 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 uh, bends towards the left quite dramatically. So when 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 you flip his his image, he looks completely different. So mainly for the beautiful likeness, once again, I think it was Tim Chantrell, who I can't say enough good things about. I, I believe that he he painted this. Frankenstein must be destroyed. That's there right. we go. I don't. I, I don't recall if there's a likeness of Veronica Carlson on that poster, but if there is, then that can only give it extra points, as I'm sure you'll agree. Oh, that, anything with Veronica Carlson's always upgraded. You know, it's, it's what, can totally. you say? what can you say about her? Yeah. Uh, except good things. <laughs> I don't think anybody except can say a bad things. thing about Veronica Carlson. No, those are excellent and answers. Probably, yeah. Yeah, well, thanks. I just wish I had the artwork in front of me to go to talk about it, but that's just trying to dredge it up from my memory. And, and for listeners, yeah. what I'll ask Alistair to do is send me those images, and then when this episode goes out, and I and I'll Derek puts it out, I'll put it up on my Facebook site and send it and put it out there so people can see what the pictures, those posters that Alistair looks like. That way, you can 
as you're listening to this, you can click on it. You can pause it and click on it. Or when you we're done the episode, you can look it up and you can see exactly which ones Alistair was referring to. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. You, right. did, you did an excellent job. I knew you would. And I told you that one, you're going to love it and hate it at the same time because you're going to love it <laughs> because it's art and hate that you have to pick. I was going to make you just pick <laughs> one, really but I tried to be nice to you and gave you and gave you a few. So that way you didn't have to, to suffer. Too no, it, much. Was, it was, it was, a, it was a, not, not such an excellent answer, but an excellent question. Thank you. Oh, it was an excellent answer. It was an excellent answer. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's your wheelhouse. That's your, you know, and, and I think sure. it's nice when you talk to people that are, that are, subject matter experts in certain topics you're able to i think it's good things to ask you know where if you ask yeah, me yeah, what's the best right. movie poster I'd, I'd give you an answer but I'm, it's like i know what i like but i'm not able to always see the color and the depth and the the warmth yeah. and the coldness or the coolness that the artist is trying to convey and things like that as as a trained professional can you know i'm just like oh that looks good and you're able to expound upon it and wait and way more than I would able to. <laughs> well, I, 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 I can ramble with the best of them, Stephen. <laughs> and now we're going to start listeners rambling about Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Behind this gate, cut off from the world of reality, lurks a world of madness, a world filled with brutality. A world of Frankensteins. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein, maker of monsters, creates the most monstrous nightmare of all. <laughs> Only the most insane mind could give birth to it. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. From Paramount Pictures, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. And you picked this one, Alistair, and why did you pick Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell? That's a good question, Stephen. I picked this one because um, I think there's always something bittersweet about Hammer's final final days. Um, I mean, the the, the output in the 1970s is being reevaluated now. People are starting to appreciate that Hammer were trying new things and um, they were experimenting. And a lot of those films, although they weren't popular or successful at the time, are now you know being looked at differently. Um, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell has always fascinated me because it's um, Hammer's final Frankenstein film, and at a time when they were going all out to try new things, including fusing a martial arts movie with a Dracula film. With this film, it's as if they went right back to their roots. They told the most traditional story with the most traditional cast and crew that they possibly could. And we will get to it, but although once again, this wasn't appreciated at the time. I think that it has resulted in possibly my favorite Hammer Frankenstein film. So I'll just leave that there. I mean, to me, and it had been decades since I last saw this film, mm. and and I was rewatching it yesterday, 
I really enjoyed it. I think this movie captures, in my opinion, one of the best portrayals of the monster being such mm-hmm. a sad being, you know, and not, you yeah. know, and, and, and really hit the pathos of that and how it went about it. And I'm not talking about the design of the monster, which we can get to later on, but I'm talking about the, the personality sure. and the emotions that the monster was going through. And, and really who is the monster as we all, as, as of all the hammer of Frankenstein, <laughs> it, it, it's because it's, but it's called Frankenstein and the monster from hell, but it makes you wonder, you know, is it, is it, who, who's really the bad guy here? And I think, and I think we'll both agree. It's, it's not the monster. That's the bad guy. <laughs> I, th- I think it's quite clear. This film should be called Frankenstein is the monster from hell. Um, I, I, I agree with you about the, the monster. In, in watching this movie again, I was really struck. I think it's quite possibly David Prowse's best performance ever. Um, I was really pleasantly surprised at how subtle some of his acting was even though he's encased in this enormous rubber, hairy suit. Um, even his eye acting, which is something that David Prowse doesn't often get to do because, you know, his face is often covered. Um, yeah, a surprisingly subtle and moving performance, which I think he should be really, really proud of. Oh, I agree. When it was in the part of the movie where the monster has the brain of the professor, and the professor mm. wakes up and the way he's looking at his hands, the way he's feeling yeah. his arms and goes to the face, yeah. you can just feel the sadness. Yeah. And and when he's crying out to angel, Sarah, help me. Yeah. It's almost like just mm. help kill me, you know, just, just put me, I don't want this. And, yeah. and it's just so sad. It's like, I did not want to continue on and, and here I'm being forced to continue on and not in that. Yeah. In a, in a monstrous body, not able to mm-hmm. do the things that I used to do and love, like play the violin and those kind of things. So it was so heartbreaking to to see that scene, and 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 I think that that to me it's it's one of the most if, of all the Frankenstein movies. This is one of the ones that brings you the most understanding that Frankenstein is such a tra- the monster is such a tragic figure. Yes. More than most agrees. I'm kind of universal Agreed. and Hammer. I think definitely by Hammer, it's yeah. definitely the one that makes it the most tragic by far, but it rivals the universal ones or maybe even possibly surpassing in the tragedy. I I, I would have to agree. I mean, you know, obviously Boris Karloff's original monster is, is an untouchable icon. And I think that's part of the reason why I generally prefer the Dracula cycle, the Hammer Dracula cycle to the Frankenstein cycle, because it's Boris Karloff literally casts a very, very long shadow. But what, what Hammer excelled in was, was finding new and different ways to um, tell, to tell the stories. Um, the, 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 the creature in this film, I absolutely agree with you. And, and the sequence of um, this huge, I mean, David Prowse, as we know, was already a huge man. He was a British weightlifting champion and, and we've seen his physique in, in other Hammer films. Wearing the suit, he's even huger. But seeing him holding this tiny, delicate violin and these massive hulking hands, it's, it's images like that that kind of burn themselves into your brain. Um, 
it's not a sensational image. It's not violent. It's not lascivious. It's just a beautifully framed, unforgettable image. Really, really nicely done. And again, I concur. And it's just, I really, I really enjoyed that performance. And and Peter Cushing as Baron Victor Frankenstein, or as he was going by most of the film, Doctor Carl Victor, Doctor Victor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was. It was. He was owning the stage. I mean, he was owning the, every scene he was in. I mean, he was commanding, dramatic. And if this was going to be the swan song of the Hammer Frankensteins, you had to have him back in that role. And, and he was just owning and the physicality. I mean, here he is. What is he, like 59 years old? So frail looking. Yes, yes, it's hard to believe that he was only 59 because, you, you know, nowadays we look at somebody's 59. It's just, it's amazing. Mm. Him, he looked much older. Yes. And and it could be the makeup, could be other things. I don't know, but he's jumping off a table on top of the monster crowd <laughs> and doing that. And I'm looking at that thing. That's not a stunt person. That's him. You know, no. and, uh, that was just, I was just, it, it reminded me of those, the horror of Dracula where he's just dynamic and jumping. And I, just, I was just like, you just loved it. He was such a consummate actor. And he's like, Oh, I can do this. You know, we don't need a double or whatever. I don't know what he's thinking. Or I don't know. Maybe they didn't have the money for a stunt double anyway. I have no idea, but he was just game to do it. And, uh, you know, there's a small man jumping on this six foot six giant David Prowse in the, in the costume. <laughs> it's just, you know, and then taking him down. That is just uh, iconic imagery. I, I The first time I watched this movie, I, I watched it with my wife, Rose, who I usually have trouble getting to sit through a Hammer film, but she sat through this one. And when when, when we saw that film, she said, my God, is, is that actually him? Um, you, you're absolutely right. People, um, people tended to age differently back then and in previous eras as well. Back, back then, a 59-year-old could look like a much older person, whereas I'm sitting here now talking to you, and that's only four years away for me. And I'd like to think I don't look like that for you. <laughs> but as we, as, as we know, um, poor uh, Peter Cushing was absolutely devastated with grief around this time. And it, lit, and it physically aged him. Um, I think in an interview, Mad- Madeline Smith, um, who plays Sarah the Angel, said that um, Cushing was basically surviving on black coffee. He was, he was utterly broken by, by the death of his wife, Helen. He obviously wasn't looking after himself. Um, however, you say a small man. It, it's hard to realize, but in, in Cushing's earlier days, he was um, a physically very fit person. He took swashbuckling roles. His first role was doubling Stuart Granger and the man in the Iron Mask. Um, he did many historical movies where he was a physically active person. So although he, he, he looked frail, he was actually still a reasonably tall man. And, and as you say, uh, it was wonderful seeing him still throwing himself into the action, like he did in the original Horror of Dracula, um, throwing himself onto David Prowse's back. It just adds, it adds, um, it adds, a commitment to a role like that that you just don't expect to see. Um, I'm going to stop myself because I've, I, I'll tell anyone that, that Cushing is, 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 is my favorite actor. Um, I watched this film for the first time in about five years. 
And I watched it on Saturday night when I just finished a, a, a very late shift at work. Now, I fell asleep three times. Three times I fell asleep and I woke myself up again and, and I continued watching. It was no reflection on the film. I was I was enjoying it far more than I expected, but just physically I couldn't stay awake so I had to watch the rest the following morning. But I was struck from his first appearance, just the ability of this man to absolutely command the, the, the um, screen. Um, his first uh, appearance, when it zooms into him standing in the doorway, someone's commented that he's actually in a very similar pose to uh, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein monster, the first time you see him in the original movie. So you get the crash zoom in, in, into the figure of the Baron, and then you get a close-up. And the first thing that you notice are those piercing blue eyes. Like, it, it's remarkable. If, if it was a modern film, you'd think, they've, they've digitized that somehow. They've enhanced that image. But no, Cushing's piercing blue eyes in this frankly ravaged face is, uh, is, is a really arresting image. And it comes as no surprise to anyone that he dominates this asylum from everyone, from the director to the staff to the inmates, just by sheer force of his personality. It's a barnstorming performance and um, reminded me, as if I needed reminding, just why Cushing is my favorite actor. Rant over. Sorry, Stephen. That's okay. I think I think on Derek's show, anytime somebody rants about Peter Cushing, I think they I think they just encourage it. Because <laughs> 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 we all know Derek loves Peter Cushing, you know, and and, mm. and, and, and everything Hammer and all other stuff. So it's I, I think I think the rant was appropriate for the the, the show that we're on. Thank you, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> and, and and I love Peter Cushing too. I mean, it's really it's it's amazing, and I know. Yes, his film debut was in The Man in the Iron Mask, 1939, mm -hmm. directed by James Whale, who ah, also directed wonderful connection. Who also directed what movie, Alistair? Well, the original Frankenstein. Yeah, Frankenstein. And, so. uh, yeah. What a wonderful connection. Yeah. All, all all ties together, you know, it's it's the James it really got him his debut and um next thing you know, he's playing the Franken Dr. Frankenstein and Yeah. Uh, was it six films? It was six films, right? That Peter Cushing did? Or was it five? I believe so. I believe so. Let me just check. I should know this off by heart, shouldn't I? Okay then. So we've got here. And of course, he's looking at InfoGothic, ladies sure. and gentlemen. You know, his I'm book. Looking at, I'm looking at his book. <laughs> yes, uh, six, six films. So, um, can I ask you, Stephen, did you enjoy Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, it, I enjoyed it when I first saw it decades ago, and I still mm -hmm. enjoy it today, but I think I enjoy it in a different way because I'm a lot older. Mm than I was then. And I, I don't think I noticed as much of the pathos of the monster back when I saw it yeah. as a teenager as I'm noticing now. And I, I think mm -hmm. that what to me is the biggest difference. I was able to focus more on this other acting that was going on, but for people who have never seen the movie, can you give a, a brief synopsis of the movie for Alistair? So they have an idea of what we're, you know, yeah, we're now, to dive now, in, what they're talking something. about. 
Of course. This was something I was intending to do at the beginning of that chat, but as usual, I got distracted. So I'm you sorry, got, everyone. I'll just give you. But you got distracted by Peter Cushing's. I think it's totally I got understandable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so young surgeon Simon Helfer, played by Shane Bryant, finds himself committed to a Swiss mental institution for practicing sorcery. In fact, he's he's devoted to the scandalous surgical techniques of Baron Victor Frankenstein, Frankenstein, who was also sent to the who was also sent to the same institution many years ago. Uh, once incarcerated, Simon finds that his idol, again played by Peter Cushing, is very much alive and has more or less taken over the asylum, dominating the director, staff, and inmates alike while practicing as the asylum's resident doctor. Simon and a beautiful mute inmate known only as the Angel, played by Madeline Smith, become his assistants. Simon is introduced to the various patients and is also shown the former cell of a murderous evolutionary throwback called Schneider who bent the bars of his window to leap to his apparent death. When a patient, a different patient with the delicate hands of a sculptor, mysteriously dies, with his corpse accidentally revealed to have had the hands removed, Simon begins to suspect that the Baron hasn't given up his original work. And in fact, he may be assembling his most terrifying and dangerous creature yet. How's that? I think it's great. The only thing we were missing was the music to, to build up to a crescendo when you said that last part. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I said before, um, unlike, um, unlike the we, – we're talking about the final days of Hammer here. And unlike the Dracula series, which ended with something – incredibly experimental, but also very, very enjoyable, and that is Kung Fu in, in China. Uh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell finishes the Baron story in probably the most traditional way possible. It's directed by Terence Fisher. It's written by John Elder, uh, otherwise known as Anthony Hines. And of course, um, We've got the final performance of uh, Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein. Did, did, did you find it surprising that in this era where Hammer could be pretty wild, that they went back to their original classical roots for a, for a 1974 audience? Yes and no. The reason I say yes and mm. no is when I saw it, it was on TV, you know, it was late night or whatever, and... I don't know, you know, you don't know the year. You know, as a, when you're young, you're not paying attention. All that came out different years. Mm. I just look at it as something similar to the other Hammer Frankenstein films that could fit in yeah. in any particular part with them. You know, with the gothic tradition. So I would have noticed it. But mm -hmm. then, as I get older and you start to realize how the other things came out, then you could be a little yeah. more surprised that all oh, they went back. But then, on the other hand, when you think about it, it's Terrence Fisher's last film, it's Peter yeah. Cushing's last. film film is Frankenstein. If you're going to go mm -hmm. old schools perk, you know, let's say, or go back to the olden days, it makes sense that that would be with Terrence Fisher who yes. would do that. And, and it just works for me. I, I, 
it doesn't bother me. I, I can I love watching gothic films now that come out nowadays. So it's not, not mm-hmm. something to me that's ever really gone out the door. Of course, I like westerns too. So I mean, it's just, I like all kinds of movies where some people say, "Oh, yeah. those movies are just not acceptable anymore." They are if done well. Every if anything is done well, it's always going to be a good film. Now, whether it'll be commercially successful, that's what people are talking mm-hmm. about, and. Yeah. And, and, and mores and times do change and some things with younger audiences, they want that, that new thing. But then, and, mm-hmm. but then of course, sometimes that old thing could be the new thing or it's count, counter yeah. programming because just because the younger people are winning, that doesn't mean the older audiences have gone anywhere. <laughs> They're still there. Sure. So sure. You want to have something that goes and targets all groups. I really enjoyed seventies hammer. It, it, it's some of my favorite mm-hmm. films, Captain Kronos, the, um, the yeah. seven golden vampires that you've been bringing up mm-hmm. you know, a couple of times yeah. are in that era, you know, in that time frame, And it's just, uh, they're really pushing different things and going different directions. And I, I really enjoy what hammer was doing. And I, I think mm-hmm. that admits that, Hey, let's put, we're putting out these other ones. We'll put out a Gothic one too, to show we're not leaving our roots. I think, I think possibly it's a response to the previous film, horror of Frankenstein, uh, which was a semi, comedic uh, reboot slash remake of uh, Curse of Frankenstein with um, Ralph Bates in the um, lead. Lots of people like this, like that film. Um, I would say the best thing about it is Veronica Carson. Um, it's not otherwise a favorite film of mine, and I suspect that um, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell was something of a response to, to, to that film, which in itself tried to take the Frankenstein story into, into new territory. Um, in doing research, I sort of dug up a Cine Fantastique magazine from winter uh, 1974, which has um, a review of this film, when it came out, and the review is, is utterly scathing. It's quite sad to read, actually. It's quite telling. The magazine has a, has artwork from The Exorcist on the front cover, and most of the magazine is given over to The Exorcist. And then on the back pages, in two columns, right at the back, is this really... Um, uh, critical review of Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. And that really illustrates just how the horror genre was then. The Exorcist had come out. Suddenly, horror was completely different to what Hammer had been offering for the last 15 years. And that's okay. Things things change, and we understand that. But as a Hammer fan, it strikes me as a kind of sad time where people were looking for new things. Don't get me wrong, I um, love The Exorcist. I, I love uh, 70s horror in, in general. Things were definitely changing. And this review says something along the lines of, Hammer have got to do better than this. They can't just keep peddling their past glories. They've got to try something new if they're going to survive. Well, of course, not only did they not survive, but many decades later, people once again reappraised Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, and what they seem to like most about it is the fact that it did stay true to its original Gothic roots. That in itself uh, makes the film a unique, a unique experience. And yet again, Stephen, as we've said before, it was a case of Hammer 
being either ahead of its time or behind its time, but not quite synced with um, with what audiences were looking for. Not saying it was a bad product in, in any way. In fact, I, I love this film, but it just wasn't quite there at the right time with, with contemporary audiences. In, in agreement with you about that, and I think I mentioned it before, I'm not sure in this one or, or in prior times when I talked with you, about sometimes you'll have a film that just comes out at the either too early, too late for certain groups. Yeah. And this one, you can make mm-hmm. an argument that it's both. It came out too late, which is what the reviewers were saying at the time. Yeah. Because it should have came out earlier. And then, of course, for a lot of us, they are now re- looking back and realizing that this gem has been there all this time are saying, yeah. oh, it came out too early because now it's not, mm-hmm. now it's getting its appreciation. So this is a movie that's, that yes. has, it's both too late and too early. <laughs> Exactly. For, exactly. For critical yeah. approval and financial approval, so it's 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 awesome. It's it's, I mean, there are some things about it. I can see even at its time, and even still now, aren't the greatest in the world. And that that, that is the 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 makeup or the costume for the monster. Yeah, sure. What did you think of it? It was a. It, <laughs> I thought it was a startling departure. To I mean. Going from um, the previous film, which also starred David Prowse as, I'm sorry, the least frightening Frankenstein monster I think I've ever seen, to something which goes completely to the other end of the spectrum, where you have this bestial hominid, which is barely human. For a start, I think they needed a better backstory. I mean, this isn't just a throwback. This is something which has barely started along the evolutionary ladder. I wish there had maybe been some better reason for why um, why the creature looks the way that it does. But once again, I have to go back to nostalgia. Um, I now have an obscenely huge library of books and magazines covering horror films, particularly of the 60s and 70s. But the first magazine that I ever bought was was way back in 1975, when I was probably a bit too young, um, and it was called Monster Fantasy, uh, which survived for about four issues. And you can actually um, find it on uh, archive.org if anyone wants to go looking. Anyway, this uh, this first issue of Monster Fantasy had this huge pictorial spread of Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. And I was nine, ten, and I just found the monster absolutely horrifying. I mean, it has a photograph of the scene that we, that we were discussing earlier, Stephen, where Baron Frankenstein is infamously holding the artery between his teeth while Helfer is attaching the vein when they're transplanting the monster's hands. And seeing the images of this hulking, ugly brute sort of holding Madeline Smith's hair, um, it scared the hell out of me. It really scared the hell out of me on a really primal level. So even watching it now, even though I can see that it's a rubber suit, I think it's still effective. I'm extremely biased, but it still scares me, and I think it still works. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, this is the way I look at it. It's as a as a Frankenstein monster. Mm. I, I I don't think it does justice to it. As a monster itself, mm. 
Mm. It's good. It, I like the way, you know, it has that bestial look. It just doesn't fit to me with Frankenstein really going that direction. Dr. Frankenstein is like, oh, let's take this guy. And as you said, it doesn't really explain how Herr Schneider could, could you know, I mean, really, come on. How, how could this person have gotten through? <laughs> you know. I, was, I, was, I was thinking, as fans often do, what sort of explanation could we offer that would actually work for why a supposed human being looks like that? Uh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm 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 completely stuck. I'm sure some of the many uh, very talented writers out there who are part of Derek's listenership may be able to come up with a good reason why the monster from hell looks like a monster from hell. I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you one. Oh, do do okay. This is just coming off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. He looked like a normal human until he became a teenager, yeah. and then the mutant gene transformed him <laughs> into looking like a beast. <laughs> He's one of the original X Men. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's the beast. He's the beast's red-haired brother. You've done it, Stephen. Magnificent. We we tied it in, and we and we used comic you books to get it. us there. Uh, what else can you say? And, and the comic books are out it's at that time. time. So we could all, they, they, they could have saw that and said, this, this is how it all worked. They just didn't explain that little bit of backstory because that was left for a prequel. You tied it, you and, tied it into the X-Men beautifully. And having said that, I can just see Peter Cushing as Professor X. Yeah. You tied it in beautifully. And, and, um, here, and here, you talked about movies that needed prequels. We could say this movie needed a prequel that could explain <laughs> all that backstory. <laughs> I love it. I, it's interesting, the um, teenage thing that you mentioned. I mean, lots of people have said that the attraction of the, of the Frankenstein monster is that um, he's not understood by his parents. He finds himself in a body that is, that is gangling and difficult to control. And it's like an analogy of puberty. Um, Teenagers relate to the Frankenstein monster because he's trying to express himself in a world that doesn't understand him or doesn't want to understand him. Um, And that's how teenagers feel. And to a certain extent, look, (laughs) sometimes. So, yeah, that definitely works for me. Well done. Well done, you. Oh, thank you, thank you. It, and I'm, I'm sure, like you said, there are writers that are on listening to Derek show that will come up with a much better rationale than than my attempt there. But at least, well, at I, least I, it's, I, it's like something it. we can use in our fan fiction. <laughs> I love it, Frankenstein and the X Men from Hell. Um, having having talked about something that, that, that we don't necessarily rate highly, I just want for a minute to talk about something which really, really impressed me hugely in this film. And that would be Madeline Smith. Obviously, when you talk about Madeline and you talk about Hammer, most people think of the vampire lovers. And um, they think about her not wearing a lot. And one of the things that I really liked about this film is that they gave Madeline Smith an opportunity to act. Not only was she clothed from neck to ankle in a, in a fairly dowdy dress, and not only was she not wearing any makeup, but she gave a wonderful performance as, as um, the mute Sarah. There's a particular scene um, 
that she shares with Bernard Lee, who plays the inmate, who's also a sculptor, <clears throat> where he hands her the sculpture of the angel that he'd made for her. And the two actors, I mean, Bernard Lee's character also doesn't speak, and they just have that eye contact as he hands her the, the sculpture. And that is just amazing. Um, many, many years ago, I, I, I went to, a, to a, a youth drama school where they were trying to set up a situation where you had two characters just looking at each other and not speaking and seeing how long you could maintain the connection and the electricity between the two actors. And this was a perfect example. Just the subtle shift and facial expression that the two actors are actually giving each other. I think Madeline Smith actually said afterwards that she was almost in tears with just what Bernard Lee was conveying um, in this performance. It's an absolute standout. And in case our viewers are, 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 sorry, listeners are wondering, yes, this is the same Bernard Lee who played Bond's boss M, I think in every James Bond film up to Moonraker, although I'm sure Someone can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. But Madeline Smith is a revelation. She really shows what she can do as an actress without relying on her sexuality. Um, I say she's not wearing any makeup, and this is really interesting because in the 1970s, um, a lot was made of women's eye makeup, and in most other performances, you'll see that. Um, that Madeline has this sort of very elaborate eyelash makeup, which was fashionable at that time. And, of course, it makes her eyes look huge. Um, without makeup, it's interesting. It's, you, you clearly recognize her as Madeline Smith, but her eyes become less of a feature, and you actually get to appreciate the shape of her face. Her, her bone structure is really exquisite. She's a really beautiful woman. And the fact that she's appearing without makeup um, really emphasizes that. But I have to say also, <clears throat> and I apologize in advance, um, although Madeline <clears throat> is dressed from head to foot, those dresses really emphasize her incredible figure as well. And, that, and, and that's also it goes to show how sexuality on screen can be a subtle thing. She's not showing any skin at all, but, but that incredible figure in, in, in that dress in some ways is more um, erotic, I think, than any amount of skin that Hammer could have put on screen and often did in, in those days. So visually and performance-wise, I think Madeline Smith is an absolute standout in this, in this film. Possibly her best... Uh, performance as well really really worth seeing her performance was amazing and it goes back to we talked about david prowl's performance with body language and hand gestures mm. but her, she was able to use her full face with her yes. as, as that and she does speak at the very end you know for a little yeah. bit and i figured hammer probably loved it so we're, we're tired of dubbing women we'll just make her mute so it's yeah. <laughs> in that way, we don't have to worry about, we don't have to worry about dubbing, you know, that kind of thing. I'm like, I, you know, but her performance was just so amazing. It reminded me of the Star Trek episode, the empath. Mm, 
good catch. Yeah. And the yeah. way, the way the eyes and the sadness that she's mm-hmm. able to convey when she's and the, and the, and the, the wanting to help people. And she yes. was like the angel of mercy. Yeah. And, and it was just so appropriate how everybody, all the inmates just loved her. Everybody yes. loved her. They knew she was this pure spirit. As we find out later, assaulted by her father yeah. prior to the yeah. movie, which led to his comeuppance later on in the movie. Um, rightly so. And, and, and this yeah. movie, this movie really has very few fatalities. You know, it's, it's, it's especially by the monster, but the monster only, if, mm-hmm. if I remember, only, only takes out one person. Yes. The rest are all interesting, isn't it? Or inadvertently or, or, or avert or, or purposely taken out by, Frankenstein or Dr. Mm-hmm. Victor. <laughs> you know? Dr. Victor. Yes, exactly. Did he exactly. do it directly or indirectly? Did he, eh, we'll never know. Or do we? <laughs> well, go, going on his previous character, if, 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 if you were to give him a character reference, I think you'd, you'd have strong suspicions. But yes, um, the, the um, angel, the other interesting thing about her is that not, not only is Sarah mute, but she also um, doesn't emote as such. Her face is largely Im- Im- impassive, and I think that's a really interesting performance. Madeline's not using her voice, but she's not using her facial expressions either. Just about everything she does is conveyed with her body language and her um, and her eyes. Absolute standout performance, and probably something that we wouldn't have appreciated as younger as younger men watching a Hammer film for all the more obvious things that Hammer films usually bring bring to the table. I, I agree with that, and that's a good point. Also, with it, I'm just I'm just still made. I mean, her performance, all the performances are really by the main cast are excellent. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you you start when, but I think also when you have somebody like Peter Cushing there, everybody's game's going to rise up, but there's one person we haven't really talked anything about. And that's really, you could call him the lead or the second lead, you know, Mm -hmm. Sean Bryant and um, Shane Bryant. Yes. And that's Dr. Simon Helda. I've really, I really enjoyed him because he came off as somebody who was on the path to become like the Baron von Frankenstein, mm-hmm. but will he continue Cause the movie, the, when the movie, I'm not going to talk about the ending except to say when the movie lights off, will he follow that path? Is he going to be forced to follow that path or is he going to try to get away from that path? It, it, it leads to be remained. I don't think he's willingly going to go down that path as he was prior. I, I, I that's a, that's an excellent point, and I was really struck this time um, when you watch Shane Bryant's performance. To me, uh, even in his delivery of lines, he starts to become more and more like Baron Frankenstein. His 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 diction and his vocabulary. I don't know if it was a conscious choice, but as the film progresses, you see him acting and sounding more like the Baron. And this is a parallel in, in real life as well. I mentioned Ralph Bates before. Uh, he and Shane Bryant, I don't know if I read this somewhere, if it's ever been confirmed or whether it's my own theory, but I've always thought that Hammer realized that to continue, they needed to bring in fresh blood. And 
Ralph Bates was originally brought into uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula to become the new vampire, not Count Dracula necessarily, but Lord Courtly. So Ralph Bates was being considered as a Christopher Lee substitute. And I believe they were doing a similar thing with Shane Bryant, that they thought this young man could become our new Peter Cushing. He could become our new Baron Frankenstein. Frankenstein, sorry. And whether it was deliberate or not, I think that this film shows all the signs that they were grooming Shane Bryant and his character to take over as the new Frankenstein. Um, but because this film is subtle, this film is surprisingly subtle, as you say, there's some ambiguity left there because we still see traces of a conscience in um, Helfer and his attraction to Sarah um, helps to keep that humanity alive. So as you say, Stephen, it could go either way. He could descend, he could become the new Baron Frankenstein, or somehow he could break away from, from that fate. We never got to find out, but there's plenty of material there for a, for a potential sequel, I think. Oh, I, I definitely think so. Especially, sadly, because a lot of these um, actors are dead. I mean, they'd either they'd have to reboot it or they can do it like Hammer's had a couple of those comic adaptions that have come out. Mm. Captain Kronos and the Mummy. Uh, they could do a, a yes. comic adaption of this one, continuing on with that story left off, and it could have us go either way uh, to find out more about which way the character would have went. And it would be yeah, interesting because like yeah. I said, we could see it going, I could see it going several different paths and all Me of too. them would be good. He's still stuck at the asylum because he was, yeah. he can't leave. So is he mm -hmm. going to be rebellious to Dr. Victor? Is he going to be a willing or unwilling accomplice of Dr. Victor? You know, I could, and you could see all three of those paths playing out rather nicely in, in the script. And, uh, it would it really be interesting to see where where it would go? Yeah, I mean, I can I can now that there's a vacancy, I could see Cushing becoming the director of the asylum, uh, leaving leaving uh, Helfa uh, free to become the uh, the asylum doctor. Hey, what what um, could have been? What could have been? I think I think that's the that's the hallmark of a good film that it actually provokes discussion about what could what could happen next. As usual, we're not going to talk about the ending uh, for, for, for listeners who haven't seen this film. But let's just say it's pretty shocking, pretty shocking and surprising. Also quite poignant as well, uh, not only with, um, with the creature's last scenes, but also the Baron's last scenes. Um, I'm not going to give the ending away, but... There's a line that Cushing gives um, towards the end of the film, which not only uh, which not only closes the film perfectly, and not only closes the Hammer Frankenstein cycle, but also in some ways, um, it's it's um, it's a comment on Hammer as as a whole, and that line, which you may recall, is. There's nothing more for you to see. It's all over now. All over. 
and it's so beautifully delivered, far better than I ever could. Um, and it really strikes a chord all these decades later when you look back and realize what was in store for, for um, Hammer. It was definitely one, as you said, like a, a fitting epitaph for that ending of the, the studio that was coming at that part. You know, it did, it did revive yeah. later on, uh, but it's just mm-hmm. amazing, like for that era. Maybe you never want, you never, you always wonder, did the writer think that? Like, hmm, is, is seeing the writing on the wall, you know, let's put this out and you never know. I mean, we can look back at it and, and assume certain thoughts and everything, but without the people being able, without being able to talk to the people and who knows, they also, even if they were still alive, might change their story and say, oh, well, I meant, yeah, that's why I put that there, you know, knowing in hindsight what had happened and they can go back and, you know, revise whether knowingly or unknowingly with their intentions of writing those words or saying that certain dialogue and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's it's left to be forever unknown, but there's one thing that I think that fits this movie, especially the scenes that were so um, being, being used as the body language, James Bernard's music Mm. really fits this movie. In my opinion, like a glove withdrawing out the Mm -hmm. emotion and the heart of those characters. It's, Yes, it does. It does. Um, this is absolutely a character piece, and when you when you consider that around this time, Hammer was struggling with budgets. There's a very limited amount of sets. There's a very limited amount of uh, characters. In fact, this could almost be a, sta- a, a, a stage pr- production. Um, where you're in a very confined number of sets, you've got a very small cast. It's got an old-fashioned element which really appeals to me. And although we've talked about the more highbrow elements, um, it wouldn't be right for me to finish this conversation without talking about the more sensationalist sides as well. Now, we've talked already and said that there isn't any nudity in this film, but, my God, there's a lot of gore. <laughs> One scene which, um, which, I, which I found myself laughing almost hysterically at and then wondered what was wrong with me that I found it so funny was the the actual brain transplant scene where we've seen the brain very carefully removed and placed into the monster's head. But before it's placed into the monster's head, the monster's defective brain is dropped into a bucket <laughs> with a wet slopping noise. And then in an absolute um, uh, genius scene, we see the Baron step back and he actually steps into the bucket, <laughs> knocks the brain out onto the floor and then just absentmindedly kicks it under a table. And I, I thought this just says everything about the character, that he's so careful and precise about what he wants. But if something doesn't serve his purpose, it's not even worth noticing. He'll happily, literally step on it and push it aside. It was it was the blackest of black humor, but I just found it hysterically funny, which maybe says more about me than I'm really comfortable <laughs> about. I enjoyed that scene too, and I was getting a lot of that same impressions from it. So it, 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 mm. uh, it was, you, you watch the thing go, you know, into the into the bucket, and then 
he steps, kicks it, and, and stum- almost stumbles a little bit. And part of me was thinking, is he going to slip on this blood when he, and, 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 and damage <laughs> yeah. the good brain? Is this going to be the plot point? Like, you know, he damages the good brain. <laughs> that way and it's like no it didn't happen he got up and was perfectly fine so it was it was i was wondering which way they were going to go with it it is just something I, when i saw the bucket down there before when they're taking it I, said, oh, I know what's going to happen here it goes plop right in <laughs> you can see it coming <laughs> you can see it coming and it was just it, it does bring a smile to your face as you say with the gore i have a thing about eyes mm-hmm. it, 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 it is my oh, kryptonite and this movie starts off mm-hmm. with an oh. eye being extracted and you see this jar of mm-hmm. eyes. You see eyes mm-hmm. again. You see eyes being put back in. I'm like, oh, they, mm-hmm. they really know what my weakness is. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of other mm-hmm. people whose eyes are the weakness. And it's just like, oh, it's, they're, they're really, they're really um, going deep. And that's why I remember this movie. Maybe that's why I haven't seen this movie in decades because it had the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's almost as if they, they amused Stephen because they were really pushing that I button, weren't they? <laughs> oh, but I'm 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 sort of gonna I'm gonna close with probably one of my favourite scenes as well. Um, and this, <clears throat> we keep talking about this film, or at least I do, as a as a character piece. Oh, I agree with you. <clears throat> Definitely, it's a character me. piece, and I'm drawn as I get older more to character pieces. Me too. There's a scene, and it ties into your eyes as well, where they've just popped the creature's eyes in, and Helfer is having a conversation with the um, Baron, and the Baron says, well, you know, when the creature wakes up, we will see. And Helfer says, "Uh, you mean he'll see? And the Baron says, what? There's nothing. And then there's a pause, and then the Baron starts laughing hysterically because he's just got the word play. But then he keeps on laughing and keeps on laughing. And it gets to that point where you may have been in this situation in your life where you realize that you're with someone who may not be quite right in the head. And you see health is sort of becoming more and more uncomfortable as the Baron is laughing hysterically at his wordplay. And I think even mutters, well, I didn't think it was that funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonderful scene because it just gives you an insight into the Baron's deteriorating mental condition. And it's... uh, it's funny, but at the same time, quite, uh, quite uh, frightening. Quite frightening as well. Oh, I, I didn't look at it that way yet, but I agree with you in your point. I was looking at it as the Baron has probably never had a laugh or had a good joke that made him laugh in such a long time. You know, and sometimes when you finally have that chance to hit you. <laughs> and sometimes, it, because he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's ever going to be listening for joke. Nobody, I don't think anybody else in this place is going to joke with him, you know, except for you know, Simon and he finally gets some humor and gets the word play. And then I think it, it, in a sense, he's, he's having some successes. He's got this guy working with him. I think it's the yes. sense of the, the <clears throat> relief and he's finally able to let loose with some laughter. So I was looking at it in that point, but I think yours is more, more likely where it's, it's, it's the unhinged, or maybe it's both like the unhinging of the mind. I, 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 I think both because I think you're um, probably right. Um, the Baron probably hasn't had a good laugh in, uh, in forever. 
there, there's two other things I want to yeah. talk about before we end this. I'm talking about the movie. Oh, please, One is please. I love that it was set in the asylum, and that the Baron oh, was looking at it as, as his own personal market. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His meat market. His meat market. Whatever you know, it's like oh, I got this part over here. That part. I got my special mm-hmm. wing, which I keep the, the the parts that are getting close to being used. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I thought that was really well done putting it in that place because nobody's going to care about these people that are, exactly. that are put there. It's just like they're there to be used. Although, in, in some twisted way, he seems to care about them. I mean, he's got to know them. He he inquires about them. Obviously, his end game is not humanitarian, but he's taken the time to interact with them as, as, as people. And that sort of adds another layer of complexity, I think. Or you could look at it as a farmer getting ready to raise his livestock. True. And, and Very certain, true. certain ones are going to be prime meat. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's uh, there's a, there's a lot of ways to look at it. I mean, you can look at it yeah. altruistically or you can look at it as, um, Oh, t- this is my farm. This is my life. This is, the, this is the cattle. And, um, we'll see what, <laughs> What uses we can get from the different animals on my farm? It's it's Frankenstein's because, farm. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, just just to extend that analogy without being too specific, um, the plans he has for poor Sarah uh, fits in with that image very uh, very nicely. We won't spoil it here. Let's just say that it's one of the more shocking elements of the uh, of the movie. I, I was I was stunned when that part came up. I was like. What? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. And yeah. especially knowing her background history, which I kind of already brought yeah. up. So it was kind of like, well. Absolutely. But the other thing we got to mention is the plethora of Doctor Who references. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. So we, we, we had two doctors in this movie the movie mm-hmm. Doctor and the second Doctor, because Patrick Troughton early did. in the movie is the body snatcher. And again, it's a small role done excellently. You know, it's, he's playing this drunk who has to dig up bodies for Simon so he can do his research and so he can get coin to have his drink and he gets caught right off the get go, which leads to Simon to be incarcerated. This is all the opening part. And just, just, I mean, you could say a prequel just following that storyline because obviously that had to get set up. What was going on prior? Because he had failed experiments that he was trying to follow Frankenstein's research. That would be interesting yeah. to know more about. I love it when movies put you in there and they don't explain everything. So you can just oh, me too. think later on, like, oh, I wonder what was going on. And, and you can fill your own thing. I don't need them filled in by a movie. I, don't <laughs> saying prequels. I really don't need to fill it in. I like filling it in myself or talking with people like you or other or other people that love the movie. And then we can just, just rift on what if, you know, going on prior exactly. to that and have that fun. Exactly. And I think that is a movie legs because if you hated a movie you're, you're all you're going to talk about is you hate but if you enjoy a movie it adds it's like it's like you can talk about all these other different things sure i mean it, it stimulates your imagination rather than putting everything on screen and leaving nothing for you to think about or imagine yourself some films can just stimulate your imagination make you think about the what ifs and the what could have been but david prowls was also in yes. Doctor Who episode as mm-hmm. Minotaur in the Time Monster. He sure was. Sure was. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful sequence where he's charging at John, John Pertwee, my, my own favorite doctor, the third doctor. And 
Pertwee takes off his cloak and uses it as a matador's cape. And it's just just wonderful. Um, we've also got John Stratton, who is the asylum director, one of the, without any doubt, vilest characters ever to appear in a Hammer film. Also appeared in a, in a Doctor Who serial um, with Peter Davison. Um, interestingly, John Stratton was completely covered in makeup and almost unrecognizable, which is kind of funny because he was a big name at the time in, in Britain, mainly from police shows, but a very accomplished actor. And the fact that he makes the director so utterly repulsive um, is a testament to his to his acting. Oh, definitely. And also, John Stratton, uh, Stratton Quatermass in the Pit, the TV version. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, well done. Yeah. And... Quatermass 2, Charles Lloyd Pack, who played the professor, whose brain was used later. Mm-hmm. So we got Quatermass references. I mean, I love it to get all these different we things. And we, we, didn't talk, we didn't talk yeah. much about the professor. I loved his character. I mean, he was in there for oh. a brief time, but it really explains his love of math, the love of the violin, his love yes. for Angel. But you talk about somebody that's been in Hammer films. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dracula or horror of Dracula, depending on which way you want to yes. refer to it. The Revenge of Frankenstein. Yes. I mean, he's got a long list of credits. He sure has. And, and such an association. And, it, and it's, 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 enough, it's emblematic, I think, of just how this particular film is, is in many ways a loving tribute to where Hammer originally came from and both its, its cast, its crew, and um, its style of storytelling. Um, and that's what makes this film really, really special. Oh, agreed. Agreed. It's just, it's a lovely film. I think we talked about the only negative could be is, is the, the costuming of the creature, which you could, mm. you know, depending on which way you're looking at it, it, it is horrific, but does it fit a Frankenstein monster? That's up to everybody's point of view. But if you take yes. that out of it, I mean, it's, the movie is called Frankenstein and the monster from hell. So technically it's a monster from hell. So they're not saying it's like the mm-hmm. typical creation. And that's one thing I, you got to give him <laughs> credit for is they're, they're monsters yeah. that Frankenstein creates or Dr. Victor mm-hmm. are all different. They're not, I don't think any of them oh, are yeah. the same. So it just shows you how mm-hmm. he'll, he'll grab any parts that he can and throw it in there. And he grabs this one that, had his, his genealogy, his, his body changed by the X gene and was changed into a bestial form. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. I really like that. I would never thought of combining X Men with Hammer, but you've done it. And I think I think we've done it again. I think we've done another. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation with you as all oh, of our conversations, too. and I, think, I hope the listeners enjoy it also. We we can only hope. <laughs> And knowing listeners that Christmas is around the corner, if you have a Hammer fan that is missing a certain book, they need to go get InfoGothic. I mean, it's it's I have it. I know a lot of people that have it and enjoy it. It if you're a Hammer fan, it is a great book to have, and I think the love and care that you put into it is just awesome. It's out there. Get it in time for Christmas. Thank you. Thank you so so much, Stephen. I sort of resisted talking about it because um, um, addressing the Hammer Frankenstein films in, in Forgothic was one of my biggest challenges. The 
trying to create a continuity between the films was very challenging, as was explaining uh, Frankenstein's hands. Uh, this comes up in more than one film as to whether he has use of his own hands or whether he doesn't. I've come up with a couple of solutions and then forgot that um, people can see if they agree with them or, or, or not. But as we've said, good thing about these films is that it provokes imagining that provokes discussion and speaking of discussion I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed myself Stephen thank you very much for having me on I'll talk about Hammer with you anytime I'll talk about anything with you anytime <laughs> it's been great fun thank you it has been great fun and listeners I hope you enjoyed it and um, I guess we can say Derek if you still need us to help you out just put out the Hammer signal again you know and, <laughs> and, and I don't know how you got it to light up in both New Zealand and Maryland at the same time but uh, kudos to you. Maybe you used Cthulhu. I don't know some some of the, some old magic, but somehow you pulled it off. Get yourself taken care of. Get everything working, and then if you if you still need more help from me, let me know. Um, that kind of stuff. I mean, Alistair and I are always here waiting for the signal. Absolutely, absolutely. Otherwise, listeners, goodbye. And um, Derek, we closing you out. But I hope everybody has a good day, and I hope you all enjoyed this. Once again, I had fun putting this episode together. Thank you to Mark, to Steve, to Alistair. And again, thanks to you for making it to the end of this episode to listen to me. Going to ramble about some of the stuff that we ramble about here at the end of the show, like letting you know that you can find links to everything that we've talked about here in the podcast in our show notes at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to our Facebook page, group, our Facebook Twitter, our Facebook Twitter. No, our Facebook page, our Facebook. You know, there's a lot there. We're trying to get more and more involved in social media. I would love to even start doing stuff on the gram for Monster Kid Radio. Who knows? We'll see. But yeah, you can find all our social media links over there, our YouTube, our Reddit, even our Discord, and our Patreon. There's just a lot going on right now in the world of Monster Kid Radio, even though it looks like I've been kind of slacking for the past three weeks. There's stuff happening, including the Twitch channel. We have been showing movies there, and we're going to be doing it again this Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific. It's the pre-show. Noon Pacific is when the movies kick in. We're doing movies from the 1950s. So we're going to get things like Frankenstein's Daughter, Giant Gila Monster, Varan the Unbelievable. And we've got a new giveaway from Stuffed with Character, a brand new figure, courtesy of Tracy Morris and the magic that she creates over at Stuffed with Character. I've seen it. It's awesome. And I think you're going to dig it. So make sure you join us on Twitch this Saturday. We also do a Twitch thing on Tuesday. We've been showing a lot of serials there again. I don't know what we're doing next Tuesday, but there will be something. Just make sure you go to twitch.tv slash monster kid radio. If you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, you may have seen me post some new links to some new t-shirts over at tpublic.com. And that's T-E-E and then public.com. Again, follow the link in the show notes. What I've done is I've taken some of the images that I've used in the past for Monster Kid Radio Christmas cards, where I take a classic Christmas film and then kind of monsterify it. And I'm putting those designs on t-shirts. So if you want a Christmas t-shirt, go get yourself taken care of. Public, I believe, is running a sale right now. And if they're not, they probably will be later this month. So go check that out. We've got Frankenstein's Monsters Christmas Vacation. We've got Tingle all the way. And we've got White Zombie Christmas available for you right now. All in t-shirt. 
and magnet and pillow form over on our T Public shop. I do plan on putting together some more Christmas themed t-shirts and just more t-shirts in the future over there as well. You know, it helps us out. Everything that you do to help out Monster Kid Radio like that by buying our merch, it helps us. It helps me. So thank you. And, you know, I'm just going to kind of put this out there. This episode is going out on Thanksgiving Day. The day after Thanksgiving, at least here in the States, is called Black Friday because it's typically when all the big retail stores and even some smaller ones and online now, too, will run a bunch of sales. Be kind if you're going to go out shopping for Black Friday. If you're going to stay in, consider looking up your favorite podcast and buying their merch for Black Friday or Cyber Monday or whatever sale they might have going on. It's a great way to support the shows that you love, and it's a great way to spread the word about your show, whether you're buying a t-shirt for yourself or a magnet for somebody else or whatever. Just please consider hitting up some of your favorite independent creators for this year's Black Friday slash Cyber Monday slash whatever other capitalism-laden or celebrating holiday you happen to have in your neck of the woods. Um... (laughs) Trying to think of anything else going on here at Monster Kid Radio. Not much other than I'm still unpacking. I'm still trying to figure out where everything is. I'm still trying to figure out how best to set up the office and everything else. I am excited about the progress I've made. I'm still overwhelmed by a lot of it. I still have to go back to Beaverton at least one more time. I'm not looking forward to that. My back has been hurting something fierce. Man, if you can avoid getting old, do it. Because uh, getting old and out of shape is the worst thing that's happened to me uh, lately. Uh, I am a six foot four frame of pain. I've got degenerative disc disease in my back. So I've got three discs that are all kind of mushed together. And my lower back has not stopped hurting in over a month. I've got flat feet and plantar fasciitis. And my left foot has not stopped hurting in over a month. My right ankle, my left ankle, my right knee for some reason or other started hurting. And I sprained my left wrist, moving things around. Going down and upstairs, carrying stuff. And just, it's... It's a mess, man. And I wouldn't have been able to pull this off again. I'm going to go down this path and say thank you to everybody who's backed me up. Some of you listen to the show. Some of you don't, but you might stumble across this. Just know that I'm putting into the uh, ether my appreciation for all those who have actually helped with the physical part of the move as well. Not just, you know, you know what I'm saying. I'm tired. I want to get this episode out. So I'm going to wrap up by letting you know that I have no idea what's coming out next week, but it'll be something... I hope, hosted by me. Fingers and tentacles crossed. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Le Baron. That is copyright 2017, The Men in Gray Suits, which you can find on their album, Panic at the Pier. You can pick that up at The Men in Gray Suits, dot bandcamp.com again that's gray spelled g-r-a-y or just follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net and make sure you let them know that you heard them here on monster kid radio my name is derek m cook i'll talk to everybody next week ciao (laughs) 